I recently received this forwarded message, and usually I don't read forwarded or spam messages, but I happened to read this one and thought it was really sound advice, so let me share it with you. It's supposedly advice from a judge in Asia who handles family dispute cases. Number one, don't encourage your son and his wife to stay under the same roof with you. It's best to suggest to them to move out, even to the extent of renting a house. It's their problem to find a separate home. The more the distance between you and your children's families, the better the relationship will be with your in-laws. Number two, treat your son's wife as his wife, not as your own daughter. Maybe just treat her as a friend. Your son would always be your junior, but if you think that his wife is of the same rank, and if you ever scold her, she will remember it for life. In real life, only her own mother and not you will be viewed as a person qualified to scold or correct her. Number three, whatever habits or character traits your son's wife has is not your problem at all. It's your son's problem. It isn't your problem as he's an adult already. Number four, if living together, make each other's responsibilities clear. Don't do their laundry, don't cook for them, and don't babysit their children. Unless, of course, there's a special request by your son's wife, and you feel that you're capable and don't expect anything in return. Most importantly, you shouldn't worry about your son's family problems. Let them settle it themselves. Number five, pretend to be blind and deaf when your son and his wife are quarreling. It's normal that the young couple do not like their parents to be involved in their dispute. Number six, your grandchildren totally belong to your son and his wife. However they want to raise their children, it is up to them. The credit or blame will be on them. Number seven, your son's wife need not necessarily respect and serve you. It is the son's duty. You should have taught your son to be a better person so that you and your son's wife's relationship could be better. Number eight, do more planning for your own retirement. Don't rely on your children to take care of your retirement. You've already walked through most of your journey in this life. There are still a lot of new things to learn throughout the journey. Number nine, it is in your own interest that you enjoy your retirement years. It is better if you can utilize and enjoy everything that you've saved up before you die. Don't let your wealth become worthless to you. Number 10, grandchildren don't belong to your family. They are their parents' precious gift. You know, this forwarded Bible message has some great practical advice for families to take note of and perhaps even practice. But it's interesting that we don't necessarily read about these specific things in the Bible. If a harmonious family life is so important, why doesn't the Bible give us more specific things we are to do in certain scenarios? First, we have to remember that the Bible gives us absolute truth, applicable to all people of every culture, Western or Eastern, and in every generation from the first century to the 21st century. And second, we need to remember that if the Bible addressed every scenario, the Bible may run a million pages long, perhaps. So in God's sovereign will, He simply gives us biblical principles we are to follow and gives us the freedom and wisdom to know how to apply the principles in our particular situation. In the Scriptures, you may be surprised to find that most of the biblical principles that deal with family dynamics and interactions focus on the development of the self and the relationship between husband and wife and not really between a parent and a child, except for a handful of verses. I mention this because Christian parents have a tendency to focus solely on the obey your parents' verses, 
without looking at themselves to see how they've lived their lives, if they are worth obeying, and to see if they model what they want for their children to emulate in their own actions. While we can choose friends, we really can't choose family. We're supposed to love our family, and yet many family members and family relationships are more dysfunctional than the relationships amongst good friends. So what does the book of Proverbs have to say about family relationships and how we can have a great God-honoring family? Let's take a look. Notice, I didn't say have a perfect family because there's no such thing as a perfect family, just like there's no perfect church. Because when imperfect sinners come together, there is no perfection. Just as you don't have a perfect family, I don't have a perfect family as well. We're all on the same journey. However, imperfect people can come together under God's grace and forgiveness to create a family that shows forth love, grace, and harmony. In other words, a God-honoring family. Now, let's take a look at four biblical principles found in the book of Proverbs regarding families. As we continue our sermon series, Foolproof, A Guide to Wise Living. Let me just note that I'm well aware that some of you listening may not be parents or even married, and you may wonder if these biblical principles apply to you. Since biblical principles are overriding truths, regardless of whatever circumstances and context you may be in, you can still walk away with spiritual applications for your lives. For example, if you're not married, some of the general principles that deal with how spouses are to treat each other can be applied to your relationship with a close friend or with your parents. Or if you're not a parent, some of the general principles of how a parent deals with their children can be applied to how you interact with your spiritual children or people you are discipling or mentoring. Anyway, as we go through these verses, you will see that these biblical principles on families can apply to all of us as it challenges us all to be more Christ-like. Let's begin by noting that working towards having a great family is something worth pursuing and is a blessing from God. Look with me at two Proverbs. The first one is Proverbs 18.22, and the second is Proverbs 19.14. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. In Proverbs 19:14, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Both of these proverbs speak to the fact that one of the greatest blessings from the Lord is having a great family, as specifically evidenced by having a great wife. It is something we should work towards having, and once you have a great family, realize it is a blessing from God. The oft-heard idiom is true. Happy wife, happy life. But in actuality, you also need a happy husband, happy children, happy in-laws, and other happy family members that make up your family to have a blessed home. While one can earn riches and you can buy a nice house to live in, having a great family is something that cannot be bought. One has to work at it with the help of the Lord. One cannot buy a great family life. There are many families who aren't rich, but who love one another and enjoy being with one another. It's not about the money, as we've already talked about in this series. In fact, money will often divide a family. You know, there are times after hearing the many family problems of those in our church community, I would come home and tell Cindy that we're so blessed. Even if we don't have everything monetarily or materially in this life, I tell her I'm glad to have you as my wife and our three kids as my children. I don't say that to brag, 
but simply to share that once you come to realize that having a great family life is a blessing from God and worth cultivating and working towards, then your perspective and efforts will be in the right place. Because we all know just one troublesome family member can make life very difficult for us, suck up all of our time and emotional energy, and bring us constant worry and grief. That's why Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Proverbs 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. The hard work one must put in to have a great family is really worth it. The initial investment of your time, energy, resources, and wisdom will yield great benefits in the future, generally avoiding the heartache of problematic family members and relationships that will take even more time and resources to fix in the future. Let's now look specifically at four things we should do to have great families. Look at what Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 teaches us. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The word translated train up means dedicate. Dedicate your child in the ways of the Lord. As guardians, grandparents, and specifically parents in this verse, there is a responsibility for each of us to intentionally and actively teach our children the truths of the Scriptures so that they know what is right and what is wrong according to God and not as defined by the world. And by doing so when they're young, when they grow up, they will have a higher chance of walking the straight and narrow path and walking with the Lord. As a proverb, this is a general principle of which there are exception cases. But generally speaking, if parents and guardians and grandparents mold and develop the character of a child, then that child will grow up on the right path. And like in my own case, where my parents did just that, but I still walked away from the Lord during some rebellious years. The seed of the gospel and the truths of Scripture were so ingrained and imprinted in my heart that the Holy Spirit used it to turn my life around and prevent me from sinning more or doing something I would really regret. You see, the first thing we need to do to have great families is, number one, instill godly values and develop Christ-like character. Instill godly values and develop Christ-like character. And this principle isn't just for little children. It is for family members of all ages. You see, family discipleship is a lifelong endeavor that can be practiced by every member of the family, even grandparents, uncles, and aunts. Do we instill godly values and develop Christ-like character in ourselves and encourage it in others? You know, it's sad but I know of academically competitive Christian parents who will teach their children how to cheat and find ways to game the academic system just to get a higher grade and to win honors. And then they wonder why their children lie and cheat when they get older. Instilling godly values and developing Christ-like character when family members are young is so when they get older, they will grow up and do the right thing. But this principle is also applicable to family members of any age. Parents, is instilling godly values and developing a Christ-like character one of the most important things you want in the life of your children, even more than their happiness, even more than their educational success, even more than their athletic achievements, even more than their hobbies, arts, and music interests? 
I hope it is, because that is how you build great families. And that desire will come out in your actions and in how you prioritize your schedule and their schedules. As someone wrote, the best way for you to influence your children is for you to be a dedicated Christian. Children sense hypocrisy immediately. They also know sincerity. If you want your children to be passionate for Christ, let them see that passion in you. You dedicate your child to Christ by dedicating yourself to Christ so enthusiastically that your children taste how good it is and wants more. Shanna Schutz reminds us that little eyes are watching. She tells her story. When I was an elementary school teacher, I wanted my second grade students to understand the connection between bad behavior and consequences. So rather than tell them if they have bad behavior, there will be consequences, which they'd probably heard a million times, I thought I would tell a clever story instead. So I used a little analogy of planting seeds. If you plant bad seeds, you're going to get weeds. If you plant good seeds, you'll get a good crop. Then I said that it's the same way with doing the wrong thing. It's like planting bad seeds that will yield nasty weeds in our lives. I had no idea they understood what I'd said until the next week. As I sped on the road on my way to school the following Monday, I battled inwardly. Yes, I know what the speed limit is here, but I'm late. And if I don't go fast, I won't get to school on time. I hoped no one would see me as I pushed the pedal to the metal. But I was caught. Woo, woo, woo! Bright police car lights flashed in my rearview mirror. My stomach muscles tightened. Ah, darn. Now I'm going to get a ticket, and I'm really going to be late. After a few moments, I drove away with a little pink slip of paper inviting me to the courthouse. How humiliating, I thought. I hope no one noticed. Later that afternoon, one of my second-grade art students filed into my classroom. There was no doubt that they understood the connection between planting bad seeds and consequences, and that they had seen me get a ticket. Miss Schutz planted bad seeds. Miss Schutz planted bad seeds, they chanted. Ouch. I was instantly reminded that character must be modeled and that even if we think no one notices that we're speeding, cheating on our tax returns, lying to someone on the phone, canceling an appointment when we shouldn't, calling in sick when we're really not, someone usually does notice. And those someones are often the little people in our lives. In their book, How to Raise Totally Awesome Kids, Dr. Chuck Borsolino and his wife Jenny write, Teach by example. Model what you desire. For our children to develop character and integrity, they must first see the integrity of our character. And we'll talk more about modeling our values in a bit. If we're going to instill godly values and develop Christ-like character in our family members, we need to make sure we ourselves know what those biblical values are. And this requires us reading the Bible and knowing what it has to say. My friends, you can't teach what you don't know. You can't teach what you don't know. Just like a father can't teach his son about how to fix a flat tire if he himself doesn't know how to do it. By the way, can I say something about the boundaries and rules that God has set for us in the Bible? Please do not make the Bible say what it does not say. Read and use Bible verses in their proper context. For example, as much as you may want, 
There are no specific guidelines for the Christian about getting a tattoo or not, having long hair or short hair or no hair, no specific rules about skirt or short length, the wearing of makeup or having earrings, what time to go to bed, the need to go to college, the type of music you listen to, and other things. Now, the Bible does have some general principles about dressing modestly, not causing others to stumble, glorifying God in all that we do, doing things that edify, and also record some Old Testament mosaic laws that do not apply to us Christians today, which the book of Galatians is emphatic about. But you will find that God's rules for how we are to live may not be as explicit as you would like to fit your own desired household rules. So please make sure that you differentiate the biblical rules that God has set, which applies to all people of all ages, and the household rules that you have set, which you have the right to do for those living under your care and under your roof. You don't have to try to find a Bible verse for every one of your rules, because there isn't one. And if you try to do so, then your children may grow up hating the Bible. Make sure you know the Bible well first so that you know what values to instill in your child and the people you have influence over. Remember, you are not transforming your child to be more like you. You are instilling in them qualities so they will be more like Jesus Christ. They should be more and more like Christ, not more like you. Now, the second thing we all need to do to have great families is, number two, have the courage to discipline and speak the truth, even if it hurts. Have the courage to discipline and speak the truth, even if it hurts. Perhaps as an overreaction to the harsh discipline we received growing up, many in our generation today are averse to disciplining our children, either because we don't want to lose friendship with our children, we want our children to like us, or we don't want to deal with all the drama. But my friends, it's not about your children liking you or not. It's about you loving them enough to discipline them when they are wrong and speaking the truth to correct them so that they will do what is right for their best. The Bible is very clear about this principle. Look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, this verse teaches a few things. First, it teaches that discipline is an important responsibility for every parent. It is not only the job of the moms, it is also the responsibility of the dads. Notice that the pronoun used here is masculine, referencing dads. Parents should discipline together. This verse also teaches that corporal punishment, meaning spanking, is allowed as a part of discipline. However, listen carefully. This verse does not teach that child abuse is okay. Parents should not dole out corporal punishment when they're angry or have lost their emotions. Now, some have suggested that this verse is saying that paddling with a stick is the only acceptable form of discipline and must be used. But that would be the wrong interpretation because the second part of the proverb tells us that the emphasis is on the need for discipline, not the method of discipline. You may ask, did we spank our children? The answer is yes. We did when they were young. But honestly, in the case of our children, it wasn't very effective so we employed other discipline techniques. We actually employed a technique using what we called the naughty square, which we happened to see on an episode of the reality show, Super Nanny. It is a discipline technique that forces our children 
to stand on a square towel, and they were not allowed to sit or leave that area, but they could do whatever they wanted while standing only on that square towel. It was to break the will of our strong-willed children as they tired themselves screaming and crying in their tantrums. It was very effective. Again, this proverb is teaching the need for discipline, not necessarily the method of discipline. Proverbs 22.15 echoes this thought. Proverbs 22.15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Here the Bible tells us it's normal for us, and even for children in our sinful self, to do foolish things. But it is discipline and correction that takes that foolishness out so that we will wake up and do wise things. And that's why the Bible is full of verses about the consequences of our sinful actions, so that we will be discouraged from doing foolish things. And that's also why we are to speak the truth, even if it hurts, because discipline and correction is what drives out that foolishness so that we will live wisely. We don't like hearing about and experiencing the consequences of our foolish sins, but it is what is needed for us to be better people. You know, my brother and sister-in-law live in the U.S., and they at one point had four boys under the age of five with no additional help. They didn't have time to mess with their boys being picky with food. They cooked one meal, and the expectation was everyone ate it. So if their boys didn't eat the food set before them, their form of discipline was taking away that food after 15 minutes of them not eating the food served and my nephews would go hungry for the rest of the night. There was no running around and chasing each child to put food in their mouth as we see some Asian parents, grandparents, and nannies doing. And it was quite effective because they learned very quickly that if they didn't eat the food served and set before them, they would go hungry for the rest of the night. Now those nephews of mine eat just fine and rarely complain about the food served. The correction and discipline drove foolishness out of them. And yes, for those of you who are wondering, I was spanked by my parents and spanked most often by my mom until the age of 14, I believe. She used her hands, a feather duster, a bamboo stick for better aerodynamics. I remember a few flying slippers and shoes I had to dodge. She only stopped spanking when I was 14 and I'd hit my growth spurt and was much bigger and taller than her and was playing American football. And I remember that day, she hit me with a stick, and that stick broke. And she realized from that day forward that perhaps talking would be more effective. But I will admit that I deserved all of it. And her loving discipline, even in the form of corporal punishment, was for my good to shape me into the man I am today. My parents always explained to us why they were disciplining and correcting us. My friends, remember to explain to your child why you are disciplining them and speaking truth into their lives to correct them. They themselves are not bad, but what they do is not right. Discipline and correction teaches all family members that there are consequences to bad behavior and actions. This truth is echoed in Proverbs 29.15. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline and a correcting rebuke lead to wisdom. But an undisciplined child will bring shame to the family 
because they will grow up to be spoiled, entitled brats whose actions bring disgrace to the family. For parents who are tired of disciplining and correcting your children and teens, hang in there. The loving investment you put into disciplining and correcting them will generally give you rest and peace in the future. This is what Proverbs 29.17 says. Proverbs 29.17, Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. If you put in the work now to correct, discipline, develop healthy emotional coping responses, as hard as it is, that it will make your life easier in the future. If you don't do it, you will have more headaches later. I want us all to notice something about these Proverbs. The responsibility to discipline and correct has nothing to do with being perfect. No one is perfect. Parents are sinners. They may be biased or show favoritism. They may not see everything or know everything. They forget that their children are different from them and they often want them to be exactly like them. So parents, admit that you're not always perfect. And sometimes you do get it wrong. Learn to humbly apologize. But imperfection does not mean you should abdicate your responsibilities to discipline and correct. You need to do your God-given responsibilities as imperfect parents to correct your child to better themselves so that a great family can be formed. Simply put, Parents are to discipline and correct. Children are to listen. Proverbs 13.1. Proverbs 13.1 says this, A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. This proverb speaks about the wisdom of listening to a parent's advice and instruction. Why? Well, for a few reasons. First, generally the instruction given by parents come out of love. You will want to listen to people who love you and want the best for you. Second, you listen because they have more experience in life and we learn from experience. We stay out of problems and pitfalls through their wise advice and godly warnings because perhaps they already messed up and want you, the ones they love, to avoid those pitfalls. Third, you listen because they're not biased, meaning they're not beset by your own clouded judgment clouded by emotions and lack of foresight. For example, when a child supposedly falls in love, all rational thought often leaves them. You know, the question I'm often asked is, when does a child not have to listen to their parents? Well, there are a lot of factors, including the age and maturity of that child. But generally, when you are married or can be independent of your parents and survive without financial dependence on them, then you are no longer a child. But if you still depend on them for food and money and live in their homes, then you have to play by the rules they have set forth in their household. However, whatever the age, if your parents or anyone in authority tells you to do something against what the Bible teaches and to do something against God, then the Bible tells us we don't have to listen and obey because we answer first and foremost to God. Now, the third thing we all need to do to have great families is number three. Teach by example and model Christ-likeness. Teach by example and model Christ-likeness. Turn to me in your Bibles to Proverbs 20, verse 7. Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. 
Here this proverb talks about the need for a person to walk in righteousness and integrity so that he can model it to his children. And the result is that his family is blessed. My friends, if each family member walks the talk and teaches by example, modeling Christ-likeness, it can change the trajectory of any family and begin a new spiritual direction. Look at what Proverbs 12 verse 4 adds. Proverbs 12 verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. This verse tells us that spouses and family members can build each other up or they can tear each other down. If they don't model Christ-likeness and tear each other down, then the family will suffer great dysfunction. As members of your family, are you leading each other to Christ or away from Him? Are you spurring on each other to improve in their spiritual lives? Fathers, are you taking on the role as the spiritual head of your household? All of these things are what we should do to teach by example and model what we desire, which is Christ-likeness. Surprisingly, if you read the entirety of the Scriptures, you will find that there are actually not many verses on how to raise your children. You won't find in the Bible what time they need to go to sleep how much device time is okay, how much time you need to spend with them, what age they need to be independent or to be married. Instead, the Scriptures focus on us exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and how we treat one another, especially family members and spouses. And this is because the best way to teach is to teach by example. How spouses treat each other will be seen by the children and emulated by them in how they treat their siblings and how they treat you. In fact, you model for your children how to treat their future spouses and even friends by how you treat one another. You give them a picture of how you want to be taken care of when you age by showing them how you take care of their grandparents, your parents. As I've mentioned before, how you treat your aging parents is often how they will treat you when you get older. Amy Marin writes, According to the social learning theory, People learn by watching others. For instance, the famous Bobo doll experiment demonstrated how kids imitate adult behavior. Researchers discovered that children treated a doll the same way the adults did. Children who watched an adult become aggressive with the doll became aggressive in their interactions as well. Meanwhile, children who watch adults treat the doll kindly imitated the kindness. You probably don't need a fancy science experiment to see that kids imitate their parents. You probably notice it every day. When you're sweeping the floor, you might notice your little one pretending to sweep also. Or you might hear your preschooler put her stuffed bear to bed the same way you tuck her in at night. Kids repeat what they hear, and they imitate what they see. For this reason, you need to be mindful of the things you're inadvertently teaching your kids. Sometimes you might unknowingly model unhealthy behavior for your kids. Consider these scenarios. A mother tells the cashier at a restaurant that her 12-year-old son is only 11 so she can get a discount at the buffet. Her son learns it's okay to lie sometimes to get what you want. A father spends his evening watching television but tells his 14-year-old daughter she should read more. Parents tell their kids to treat everyone with respect yet they often make critical comments about other people behind their backs. 
A divorced couple argues frequently about custody issues and visitation, but they expect their kids to get along with one another. A parent tells her son to stop putting his finger in his mouth, but when she's nervous, she bites her fingernails. A mother tells her daughter to be kind to others, but she yells at the store clerk when the store refuses to take back an item she tries to return. A father tells his kids that they should eat healthily, but he sneaks dessert after they go to bed. Parents tell their kids to share and be generous with what they have, yet they never make donations or get involved in any sort of charity or volunteer work. A father smokes cigarettes. While he has a cigarette in his hand, he tells his kids that smoking is unhealthy and that they should never pick up the habit. Parents tell their kids to take responsibility for their behavior and their choices. Yet when they forget about their child's dentist appointment, they argue with the receptionist and tell her she clearly made a scheduling error. My friends, if you aren't going to be a good role model of Christ-likeness yourself, then you don't have much moral authority to tell your kids what to do and whom to be. This principle of modeling Christ-likeness for building great families is not just limited to parents. Children and youth who are Christians living in a non-Christian or even a Christian home are to model Christ-likeness. Remember what Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Modeling Christ-likeness is a responsibility for all. Now, the fourth thing we all need to do to have great families is number four, leave a spiritual legacy worth continuing. Leave a spiritual legacy worth continuing. Think to yourself, what is it that you want to leave to your children and grandchildren? Lots of money, which has destroyed the family, a family business empire, which you built up, but had no time to spend with your family to create memories, a spiritual ministry that has helped others, but to the neglect of ministering spiritually to your own family and close friends? Look at what Proverbs 13.22 says about legacy. Proverbs 13.22, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. This verse is talking about the type of inheritance one should leave. A good person leaves behind more than money. He leaves behind a spiritual legacy, a good reputation, or leaves behind a godly example. Of course, monetary wealth can be left as a legacy and inheritance, but it isn't necessarily a lasting or significant legacy because money can be squandered away and even lead to the destruction of the family as we talked about a few weeks ago. But an inheritance and legacy that counts for something is one that is spiritual and worth continuing for generations to come. Will your family say of you, I want to be just like him? Or will they say, I want to be different from him? I want to be different from how my dad or mom was like or how they treated me. That's a jarring question for sure. To assess the type of legacy you're leaving behind, you may even think about what they will say of you at your memorial service. Will there be anything worth saying about you? I recently officiated a memorial service, and during the eulogy part of the service, 
the grandchildren were talking about their grandmother who had just passed away. And what they said was very touching and beautiful. They talked about the relationship they had with her. They talked about the spiritual influence she had on them and shared the wonderful memories of time spent with her. There was not a single mention of the money she left them or anything to do with physical assets. The legacy of the grandmother that made an impact on the lives of the grandchildren was a spiritual legacy. They all remembered the time she spent with them, the godly advice she dispensed, and even the wise correction she gave. As members of your nuclear family, what sort of spiritual legacy are you leaving that is worth continuing and worth remembering? Because, my friends, at the end of the day, it is the members of your family and even your friends who will rise up and call you blessed. Look at Proverbs chapter 31, verse 28. Proverbs 31, verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Proverbs 31 describes a virtuous woman, a virtuous mother, and notice that in this verse, it is others who rise up and call her blessed. It is her husband, it is her children. What will the members of your family say about you? And is the spiritual legacy you have left behind worth continuing and worth remembering? If you remember this, it may change the trajectory of how you want to build up your family to perhaps be a Christ-honoring family. Pastor Ray Ortland shares the story. My father grew up in a Swedish-American home where they didn't express love. They didn't talk about the deep things of the heart. It wasn't their way. But it is God's way. Dad understood that about God. So when Dad got married and started his own home, he made a decision. He launched a new tradition. And I grew up in a home where we openly expressed our love for each other. It didn't take three or four generations for this to evolve. Dad changed it suddenly because of who God is. Some of my best memories are the family sitting around the dinner table and Dad saying, let's take time now to affirm each other. He set that tone. It was the gospel in our home. It's what God has for every family here starting today. Men, let's repent of our silence and the sin of withheld love. Have we robbed our families of the love they deserve? Have we truly and worthily represented Christ to our families? Or have we, in effect, denied the gospel in our homes? My friends, have you left a spiritual legacy worth continuing and worth remembering? So to build great families, remember, number one, instill godly values and develop Christ-like character. Number two, have the courage to discipline and speak the truth, even if it hurts. Number three, teach by example and model Christ-likeness. Number four, leave a spiritual legacy worth continuing. May we be challenged as parents, grandparents, dads, moms, husbands, wives, uncles, aunts, youth, children, nephews, nieces, grandchildren, to seek to build great families that honor the Lord. We are not trying to create the perfect family. There are no perfect families, not even mine. I'm not of that generation of pastors who say, look at me and my family, we're perfect, and we have all of this figured out, and my kids will be perfect. My friends, we are all broken people, sinners saved by grace, and as imperfect yet redeemed people, we can learn to right wrongs, 
say sorry, learn to forgive, seek genuine reconciliation, and to show love to one another. And by humbly modeling these Christ-like qualities and Christ-desired things, that we can show the world what a God-honoring family looks like, a family that is not perfect, but a great family that lives out biblical principles under God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these wonderful reminders and lessons from the Scriptures. Lord, we so desire that our families would honor You, would serve as a living witness of what Christ can do to transform imperfect people, to bring them together to show forth love and reconciliation and joy. Father, I pray that You would use each one of us to spur on Christ-likeness in our lives, but also in the lives of our family, so that how we live out our lives would be indicative of the God we believe in and the Scriptures we look to for truth. Father, I pray that You would challenge us to really live out these biblical principles as parents, not to fear discipline, but to lovingly correct when we see the need to do so, and for children to model Christ-likeness to their families. Most of all, Father, I pray that You would be at the center of these families, that each of the families represented by those who are listening would be families that are Christ-honoring and God-fearing. May Your name be blessed and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.